Greetings and welcome to Simpac Live, where the rubber meets the road. I'm your host, Jeff Matthews, and tonight is my special guests, Craig Fazy and Gary Harding. They're from Energy Flex in Australia. Welcome, welcome, gentlemen. Uh, we've known each other a, a while now. We we were very similar viewpoints on a few things, and and I, I've quoted your name, Craig, in, in a couple of articles I've re, uh, I've written, and, and recently the the last one was. Uh, what about demand side response? Published in Aluminium International today, it was entitled "Demand Side Response: Somebody Else's Problem" and a question mark. And uh, when I was in there, there were a couple of things that I, I mentioned you specifically about. One is about storing energy within industrial processes. Um, but bef- and before I, I let you start to talk about that or ask you about that, I'll just say a couple of things about um, that article and the IEA report that came out this year. So the IEA report came out 2023, the Energy Outlook, um, Energy Outlook 22 is the document, come out beginning of 23. And usually um, I read that, that document and put it aside and say, well, that's great, and I never really think about it again. But this year was a bit different. This year was different. It was a very futurist document. It was a compelling document, had a whole lot in it, 500-odd pages, and, and um, I've said I've, I've read it, so everybody else doesn't have to. I'll tell you what's in it. But, um, but one of the things that was in it was that they are predicting that the total energy storage required by our energy systems, 25% of it will be in demand-side response. They're also saying another 25% will be in batteries, um, and I know both both you and I, Craig, we we think that you know you only top up batteries um, from um, excess energy. Therefore, it's a demand side response mechanism as well. But before I hand over to you, there was one other thing in the IEA report, and and I, it was the first time I've seen this term used, and I, I it was a stunning statement to me. It said we must decouple our industrial processes from demand in the grid. And I know that might be music to your ears, and I just really wanted to get your start off with your thoughts on that. Oh, thanks, Jeff. I mean, look, it, it is absolute music um, to both of our ears. Um, we, we did a, uh, a job for Shell QGC uh, a couple of years back. In fact, we won our AFR Most Innovative Company Award for it. Uh, and essentially, they asked us to look at their energy cost problem um, and essentially it was uncontrollable from their perspective. Uh, and we said the same thing, this was in 2017, that the energy cost problem you've got is because you can't decouple your your uh, your various different production processes um, in, in line with the energy price, right? So to see the IEA coming around to exactly the same idea, the fact that if we have to operate constantly, then when you've got a variable input system, that makes it really tough. But if the operations don't have to be constant, if operations can actually be decoupled from the electricity system, so we go faster when there's a lot of energy available and slow down when there's a lot of energy not available. And, and this, the really important part of this is go faster more than slow down. Because for years we've known when energy is scarce, you have to slow down. But with renewables, the real problem is what do we do with all of that excess energy in the middle of the day? How do we go faster and use it when it's there and then slow down when it's not there. What you're actually doing, we call this process storage, where instead of actually storing energy as uh, in a battery so that I can you know, store the energy and continue to operate continuously, we use the energy and change our operations. The, the impact on the grid is the same, but the energy impact, the efficiency is um, 
orders of magnitude better and the cost drops down so that energy becomes a real benefit rather than a hindrance in the energy transition. So, yeah, music to our ears. Gaz, what are your thoughts on that? I agree, uh, Craig. Yeah, to, you know, I think you covered it. We talk about trapped energy value. That's the real idea here is about the, the actual trapped value that's in part of your process. So we're here to unlock that. That's really all it's about, Jeff. Uh, can, can can you give me an example of what energy uh, uh, storing energy within your industrial process looks like? You know, um, because it could be it could be I've I've said that energy storage or uh, you know in the within the process can be as rudimentary as uh, as stockpiling, which was a which was a dirty word before you know when we were looking at just in time manufacturing, and we we saw where we got with that when COVID hit. So just give me some examples, or give the viewers some examples. Well, in fact, stockpiling is the perfect example. And look, nothing wrong with just-in-time manufacturing, but what we didn't realise was that the basic assumption for just-in-time manufacturing is that energy is constantly available and cheap. And if energy is constantly available and cheap, then the, the best way to operate is at your most efficient set point, which is what lean manufacturing did across the board. But if energy stops being constantly available and cheap, then you have to actually treat it as an input variable. And the best way to treat it as an input variable is via via stockpiling. So, you know, one of our favourite examples is a, is an ore crusher, right? Your mine digs up the rock, then they have to take it from big rocks to little rocks down to powder so that they can get the minerals out of it, right? Once the rock's crushed, it stays crushed. So why wouldn't you crush faster when the sun's shining and stop crushing when the sun's not shining rather than put all of that extra power into a battery, lose a huge amount, have a huge capex cost, uh, just so that you can keep a crusher, which is designed to turn on and off because they get big rocks in them, they get jammed, they have to turn off on and off. Why would you, you know, store the energy so that you can run continuously rather than use the machine as so, it's been designed? So what you're saying is either two hoppers, storage hoppers, and run your rock crusher faster and store twice as much, or two rock crushers that work faster during when, when the sun's shining and, and you switch them off later. Well, the, the, yeah, absolutely. The really silly part that we see is uh, essentially, you know, oftentimes the way a mine works is you get the rock comes out of the ground, it gets put onto one stockpile, it goes through the crusher to go into another stockpile and then goes through a grinder, right? So you're taking it from a stockpile to a stockpile. Why on earth would you do that continuously? Yeah. Well, because when, 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 you, when the people invented the machines, they had continuous power from cheap fossil fuels. Yeah. Well, actually, that's, that's not – well, they did. But remember, lean, basically, when, when these machines were first built, they all operated at different different speeds. Lean came across and said, tune the whole system so that it can, can operate at one most efficient speed, right? The very same mechanisms that allowed us to become extremely efficient in that whole um, just-in-time manufacturing process are still available now to go back out. I seem to have lost you. I'll keep talking just in case. Um they're still available to go back out and make the system variable so that it can actually uh, work in line with, with the available yeah, yeah. We, we We definitely have uh, each other on the system, even if uh, we dropped out for a, for a second there. Um, Craig, keep, sure. keep yeah. talking. <laughs> the, the, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. There. Yeah. I'll, jump, I'll jump in, Craig. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, though, even uh, really, really hard mining engineers that have been given the question, what would you do with three hours worth of free energy during the day, take a completely different slant on this, so Jeff. They turn around and go, well, if I had that, well, what would I would do is, you know, I would go to uh, supplemental crushing. 
I would do that during the day and have that as a supplemental feed and go really hard during the day. I would do that if I had free energy. That's all we're trying to get is this thought around the idea that you should go hard when you can uh, during the day and, and basically wind it off at night. So, And this is trying to not upset the apple cart in the mining operations at the moment, the sag mills, big investment and those sort of things. Okay, we get it. Let's supplement that that idea with variable operations that take advantage of that that really cheap energy during the day and give you that supplemental yeah. bump that you can get at a mining operation. And 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 you and I, yes, I remember years ago you and I talking about the the three hours of free power during the day, and um, uh, and and. And and it may be five or more, and it may be you know it it may be if if they're building if they're remote and they're building their own uh, uh, their own uh, plant, they're likely getting what eight uh, at least um, maybe maybe more in, in in summer hours, and essentially it's free. It's very low cost anyway. They've got a bit of capital cost. But the issue is, is that it's got no storage for, for, for when the sun goes down unless they build wind and they've got wind at night. Right. This is the, this so, the idea around being a scalable and adaptable miner in the future, which is the project we ran with Oz Minerals. Um, the reality was it was a, you know, a tour of discovery as to whether you could build a mine that was truly scalable and truly variable. Um, and Craig, if you want to talk about the, the outcomes of that. Yeah, actually, I would say if you go to Oz Minerals and have a look at their uh, – Think and Act Differently program. The, the paper is available. It's called the Scalable and, Scalable and Adaptable Challenge, which is a challenge to say. But um, the, the guts of it was that if power isn't constantly available, the highest net present value comes when you actually plan for discontinuous operations. So you, you set the system up to be able to turn on and turn off as power is available. The good thing is, if you're doing this on a daily basis, you know, I'm active, I'm turning up and turning down on a daily basis. When you do run into an area, you know, like a cyclone comes over and we get three weeks of cloud, um, that happens for us here in Queensland. I, I, I've heard you just have blue. If you're actually practising it and you're turning on and off for eight hours a day, then you can probably survive for two or three days um, without any real problems. If you're continuous, you know, if you're operating continuously and then you get into a wind drought or a solar drought, you're in a lot of trouble, right? So... Practice to be flexible. It gives you the best net, net present value, and it's the best energy outcome as well. And and what? So, energy flex that, that that is in your name. How how are you finding when you're talking, especially some of these old when you're talking to people, some of these older industries. We know mining, we know um, smelting. A lot of those industries they're over a hundred years old. So you're talking about. And one of the things I, I mentioned in a podcast, I mentioned. Um, I mentioned you, uh, Craig, talking about uh, third-generation engineering versus first-generation engineering. Just just take us through that concept, or, t- or take the listeners through that concept, because uh, what you what you said in, in that makes total sense to me. But uh, I, I think just 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 take us through that. Well, the thing is that when you're born. The world that you grow up in, it's easy to assume that this is the way things always have been and the way that things always should be, right? Engineers are are no different. The the engineers that design the system in the first place have got a set of of decisions they can make on on different equipment, different ways of operating, a a whole range of options that they could choose, right? And for a set of reasons that are probably only visible to them at the time, they make a set of choices and then the system gets built, right? The, the second generation of engineers come along and they learn something about how the decisions were made and, and how it operates. But by the time you get to about the third or the fourth generation, 
you stop learning about the decisions and what you learn about is how to operate the system as it exists, right? At that point, it's hard to, hard to realize that the system could be different. Um, and I know, you know, you said that um, a, a, a guy whose great-great-grandfather was working in an aluminium smelter could quite happily walk into one now. It might be a bit cleaner, right? But it's essentially the same process that he was doing, a, you yeah. know, 100 years ago, right? For that sort of industry to come in and say, hey, this can be different is, is almost earth-shattering. But what we found, you know, Gaz mentioned uh, miners saying, what if we gave you three hours of, of free power per day, right? What would you do? And, and we're talking lots of power, you know, 10 megawatts for three hours a day. What are you going to do with it type of thing, right? Um, and it takes a while for the penny to drop. But when the penny does drop, the fact that, you know, make hay while the sun shines. Your grandmother said that. And this is essentially what we're talking about. Use it when it's there rather than getting someone else to to catch it for you, save it for you, just so that you can continue to operate the same as you always So. And so to sum that up, the, the, the old economic paradigm, and I'll call it old now, of uh, the, the most efficient use of capital was operating a machine 24 by 7, needs to be re-examined in the light that, we, that when power is not available, it's going to be very, very expensive. And when it is available, yeah, it might absolutely. even be free or low cost or even negatively priced. We, we, we are complete believers. The, the thing is, right, um, renewable energy is, you know, that it's variable, intermittent and correlated. Um, variable is the sun comes up and goes down each day. That causes the wind. So, you know, that's predictable. Intermittent is sometimes it's cloudy, sometimes it's not. So you're never sure just how much you're going to get. The correlated is the real kicker in this whole thing, because if, if one solar panel is generating electricity, Usually lots or if not all are generating in the same area and even in Australia, you know, often in the whole country, they're all generating at once, right? And if one's not generating or if one wind turbine isn't spinning, the chances are that none of the ones around it are spinning and, and oftentimes, you know, because of the way our weather works, it can be, you know, the whole country's got no wind on it on that particular day. So that means that when you're generating, you're generating into a glut and when you're not generating, um, it's a famine. Right? And, and what you've got to hope is that I get sun on my panels when everyone else has got cloud, right? Well, that's a pretty pretty tough way to run a business, you know? Um, that, that's it's, So what it means is it'll be either really cheap or really expensive. And if you can take advantage of the really cheap part, then, then power will be pretty much free. But you're also, you're providing a business opportunity for the people who are, um, who are actually uh, generating the power. Because We've got a, co a company over here in Australia, um, Rugs A Million, and their their marketing used to be always about these rug shops going out of business, so we've got these rugs really cheap. You know, and I look at it and think, crikey, how many <laughs> rug shops are there in the country? You know, there must be one going out of business every week. And when people talk about, um, oh, you know, it doesn't matter about the cost of electricity or the cost of, let's say, you know, of, of storage, because uh, if I get the power for free, then I can, I can afford to do it. But if you're getting the power for free, someone else is going out of business. We need to find a proper use for this so that so that the people who are generating can stay in business and keep making the power for us and that's by becoming flexible using the power when it's available and not using it when it's not yeah 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 for sure and 20 because going back to the IA report 25% of our e energy storage is in demand side response so that, so and then they said 25% of batteries assuming the last 50% is a little bit in, in frequency response, but the bulk of it will be uh, in in pump hydro, um, it, then um, 
25% is going to be really significant. And that means I, I've just recorded a podcast and I said in it that demand-side response will touch the lives of virtually everyone on the planet because renewable energy will touch the lives of virtually everyone on the planet. And the two go hand in hand because one's intermittent and the other means in the rudest, uh, crudest sense, you have to switch off or you're going to be switched off because there's not enough power to, to, to run that. And so let's just turn to industry on the demand side providing energy security because there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about energy security and energy security. And, and we do know what happens when the lights go out in major cities and things. Um, is generally, it's mayhem and, and rioting and a breakdown of orderly society. Um, and so energy security is important, but it means that industry have a really large, important and uh, responsible role to play, that when there isn't enough uh, energy into grid. And we're talking here in Europe, it's a deep winter. It's a three weeks in winter. You've got um, icy conditions, no wind, no solar. Um, everyone's freezing. In in Australia, it might even be midsummer, you know, where you've got peak, peak energy and people need to keep cool to be able to stay alive, um, essentially. Um, just take, take me through your thoughts on how industry responds to those grid shortages and their responsibility. And this is the decoupling that even over those longer three-week three, three week periods, you know, take me through your thoughts on that. Well, um, okay, here, let me show you a little picture. This this little jar here. Yeah. Can you see that? That's uh, Beerenberg. It's, this is actually tomato sauce. I, I wanted it to be strawberry yeah. jam, but I couldn't find it in my bottle. Right. Um, so the, the thing about... Um, Beerenberg is a, a, a company outside of Adelaide, and they make some wonderful, wonderful produce, right? And the question was, how much, um, how much strawberry jam do they make in the middle of winter, right? And the answer is none because there yeah. are no strawberries, right? Um, uh, you know, you don't, you don't store strawberries so that you can make strawberry jam continuously throughout the year. When you've got a lot of them, you make jam, and when you don't have yeah. enough, you don't make any, right? So you're practicing in in responding to variable input. Um, Power as a as a variable input is exactly the same. So industries um, industries that need power uh, and they're going to go through a uh, you know the, the European winter. They know about the European winter, right? Um, the question is, is it more cost effective to set up the industry so that it can shut down during winter um, and then start up again when the power comes back on, or to actually store the power so you can run continuously? And I went to uh, Virginia Beach in the middle of winter over in the states. Uh, and, you know, Virginia Beach is a huge tourist area. Um, think Gold Coast, just in, uh, in, in Virginia. Um, and in the middle of winter, there are these huge five-star hotels completely shut down. The reason they're completely shut down is because no one goes there in winter. Right? They're already being flexible. The hotel doesn't, um, they don't keep operating continuously and trying to drag people in who won't go. They understand I've got a tourist season. You know, ski resorts do exactly the same thing. You know, they, yeah, the ski resort runs when the snow's here and doesn't run when it's not. So um, industry can operate the same. It's just they've got to change their mindset and understand if energy is not constantly available, 
how do I change my operations to make sure that I can continue to work? And um, are you are you seeing this? And are you seeing this with your the people that you're talking to on the ground in Australia? Are you seeing this change? That industry starting to recognise this, uh, or and even starting to recognise um, the economic opportunities of of energy flexibility. We are, but it's it's hard, and it's uh, look yeah. You're up against, you know, 100, 130 years of training that this is the way it should be. But um, the discussions are, are promising. Gaz, um, can can you sort of, yeah. what do you think? I think it's a change. Yeah, absolutely. Look, from, from the customer-facing perspective, I think what we're doing is really selling the message that uh, it's like solar, you know, off-grid uh, homeowners in Australia. They're doing exactly what we're asking industry to think about, which is uh, go hard during the day, power up all your batteries, and then be very frugal at night so you can get through. So if you're off the grid, you've got to be variable. That's exactly the message we're selling to industry, which is really starting to take hold here in because ARENA, our renewables energy agency here in Australia, has started to wake up and actually fund demand-side activities in industry. This whole idea that we've got enough energy, now we have now we need to understand how to actually use it. So they're rolling out programs that are touching on the cold chain, um, retail, cold retail space, supermarkets, and so forth, where they're starting to really push the idea that that stored energy inside the refrigeration environment is extremely valuable uh, for the grid, and it's again easily easily controlled because it's a slow moving temperature differential that we're talking about here. Wind it up, wind it down a couple of degrees, prepare for the times where we need to come off the grid, um, prepare all your store, your cold storage and so forth and start to become variable and rewarding them for doing that. So that's a good example of where it's starting to be proliferated through this distributed network of cold chain uh, logistics supplies. It's, it's a really big distributed area and they're saying, please be flexible and we'll reward you for it. So getting into mainstream communities is where we're really starting to see some, some interest at the council level where councils are starting to say, We've not only got an energy cost issue, we've got a carbon problem that's looming. We've got this noose around our neck that says I've got a 2030 goal that I need to achieve and I don't know how to get there. So what we're saying is take your, take your uh, community assets and start to think about being flexible about your pools and thinking about how they're operating around that whole cadence of available renewables. And they're thinking this may be a way that we can actually co-opt the whole community to start thinking about how they use it at home and how they can affect their whole their whole um, uh, emissions footprint to really offset their problem that's looming at them large in the future. So the, the message is getting out there, Jeff. I, I must say the big emitters, the, the aluminium smelters, as you know, it's a hard conversation, but everybody's starting to wake up. And I think that they're starting to see that there's value to be had in not only um, the idea of being you know, energy efficient or certainly energy, um, energy cost benefits, the carbon side of it's massive, let's face it. And companies are looking at us to say, can we use this to help people offset their uh, energy costs at home? Certainly from our perspective, it's something that employers are starting to worry about their energy footprint as it pertains to their employees. So they're saying, how do we help them get better at home? So it's proliferating right through the uh, through the ranks in some respects, and we're really hopeful to see it keep happening. Now, one thing you just touched on there, and, and this is the last point we'll, we'll talk about, because I know for a while you've talked about uh, energy value proposition. And that is somebody's – the energy that you – is a cost to you. And if you're an industry and let's just say you've got a, a million dollar or a half a million dollar power bill a year, you you guys have got the idea to flip that around and go, well, that's actually a, a value proposition if you can flex it. And just, just take us through that. 
Yeah, I'll quickly jump in on this As, one. Just the exciting bit for us, you know, the reality is, as I said it at the start, Jeff, it's talking about that trap energy and carbon value that's in your asset. It is actually an asset to you. If you can turn around and actually start to flex that, you can get uh, you know value streams out of it, uh, as we've mentioned, through energy cost reductions and certainly through that carbon emissions piece. So it is a value proposition. People don't know that they're sitting on value. So it's a bit like shining the, the torch on the gold nugget in your backyard. Would you take a shovel out and dig where somebody said there was gold? Yeah, you would. And that's what I think we're saying in every business, that you have got an asset if you can use it the right way, like you would uh, any sort of uh, activity inside your business that you thought you would get a better value out of it. Energy footprint is exactly one of them. And, and, and I must say, people are starting to wake up that, yes, it's a cost, but let's flip that over to being a valuable asset to us in some way, shape or form. And then again, carbon comes with it as an absolute benefit. If you can justify these reductions, you can start to uh, create carbon credits through the system here in Australia. So it's a it's a win-win. That's great. It, look, that's a great, great, uh, great interview. Thank you, guys. Thank you for appearing on, on Simpac Live. Really interesting discussion, as always. Uh, and if people have got um, questions, they can leave them in the comment section, and I'm sure you guys will answer them for them. Um, I'll, I'll pass them on. But once again, thank you for appearing on Simpac Live, and uh, look forward to talking to you again at some other stage. Thank you. Thank you.